As we continue with the ministry of the Word of God, turn with me to the old book, the book of Exodus, in chapter 10. We'll stand together for the reading of God's Word. Exodus 10, we'll take it up at verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may even be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Only let your flocks and your herds be kept back. Let your little ones also go with you. But Moses said, You must also give us sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also shall go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. We must take some of them to serve the Lord our God, and even we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take heed to yourself if you see my face no more, for in the day that you see my face you shall die. So Moses said, You have spoken well. I will never see your face again. Thus far, the word of God. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we call upon your name as we continue in our worship. Father, we... We obey you to have the preaching of the word in our service as the, the high point and the pinnacle. It is there that Christ is exalted, Christ is proclaimed. But Father, we acknowledge that uh, we are frail dust. We are easily distracted and our minds can wander. We pray, O oh God, that you would capture our attention, that you would lead us to Christ, that we would hear him, that we would see him in his marvelous workings of old. Lord, be exalted in our midst, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Many of you were in this congregation when I preached through Genesis. But even if you were not, those words as Genesis opens are very familiar. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light <coughs> from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. But then it's not until the fourth day, after the creation of the, uh, the plants even, an earlier day, that we read that God then made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He also made the stars. Do you notice you hear the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night? Well, we immediately would recognize this, the sun and the moon. But notice uh, God does not give a name to those heavenly beings, those heavenly bodies. He doesn't give them names because God knows that when man falls into sin, it will be his tendency to worship the sun and the moon. And indeed, man has done so. We certainly see that's the case in Egypt. 
They went so far as to have three gods connected to the sun. One wasn't enough. They had Horus, who was the god of the sunrise. Aten was the god for the midday sun when it was in full heat. And Autumn was the god of the sunset. But there was a greater god than these, and that was Amon-Re. And in the minds of Egyptians, their, their religion, their worldview, everything that they rested on, but this god of the sun, Amon-Re, was self-created. Now think about that, children. What kind of god is self-created? Just, and, and where does that even happen? How does a god create himself from nothing? You see, the contrast to the scriptures, the scriptures is in, in the beginning, God. God was, God is, God always is. And he has created all things. But here you see the foolishness of man. As they see the sun make its circuit, they think that the sun has great power. And so they begin to uh, declare that the sun is self-created, the God that all the other gods uh, answer to, and they believe that Ammon Ray created them. Children, do you see the foolishness of that? The, the sun created, what is the sun? It's, it's a, a great orb of plasma and ongoing nuclear fusion, a constant burning and exploding from a, a core of nitrogen or helium and um, hydrogen and helium, I think, are the two main components. And it's this constant reaction. Uh, we know that if the earth was just a little closer to the sun, we'd all be perished. So is it reasonable to think that the sun created man? Are we anything like the sun? We're nothing like the sun. And indeed, the sun has no personhood, has no intelligence, has no thinking. But nonetheless, that's what the Egyptians believed. And so then what they've done is they think then that Pharaoh is the representation of Ammon Re on the earth. They see Pharaoh, and we've talked about this. They saw Pharaoh as the God. What Pharaoh said went. Pharaoh is to be obeyed. And, and we've noticed this conflict between the one who is sovereign, uh, the God of the Hebrews, but not only the God of the Hebrews, he's the God over all. He is alone God. And Egypt, I mean uh, Pharaoh, a mere man who thinks he's sovereign, and he's grasping and clinging to his sovereignty. And uh, really, he, he sees this as a great conflict. He, he imagines that he's going to win, but it's about like me going out here in the parking lot and finding an ant and having an arm wrestling match. I mean, it just there's no comparison between God and Pharaoh in reality. But Pharaoh thinks there is. But listen to this. There's, there's many things that have been preserved, the hieroglyphs and all that. We know so much of this because of that. But just listen to this song. This is a song to worship Ammon Ray. Notice the very first line. There is none besides him. Wow. You would mold the earth with, by your wish, and you, and you alone. All peoples, herds, and flocks on all the earth that walk on legs, all high that fly with their wings. So they're singing praises to the sun as some sort of creator. When the sun rose each morning, then, the Egyptians believed that the life-giving source had come back from where it had disappeared. That The sunset was then to them the idea that there was the, the sun had disappeared into the underworld and into the place of the dead. 
And then every morning they had hope again because here come, here came Ammon Ray or in the various manifestations, different names they had. So they believed that the ever-rising sun could never be destroyed. And from childhood, your ages, they were taught this was so. And that's why they believe it. And you, as children, we're so impressionable. Uh, we, we believe what we're taught. And, of course, as we get older, we question things. And even you as church members growing up in the church, it's not wrong to question things, but just don't discard the truth. It's good for you to look at what you're taught and understand that it is so. Don't just blindly believe it. Well, this was the world, Egypt, that the children of Abraham, the Israelites, they lived in this world. And we have to consider that they had lost sight of who God was in some sense. They knew that they were the children of Abraham, that the Lord was their God, but how little did they know? How far removed? Uh, They've had no prophets. Uh, They're busy making bricks. The whip is at their back. Every day is a chore, and they suffer, and they wonder, where is their God? And it's entirely likely that the children of Israel had borrowed ideas from Egypt when they thought about the Lord. We should ask ourselves the same sort of question. Have we lost sight of who God is? Um, we live in the world. Do we live like the world? Have we borrowed ideas from the world about who God is? I was thinking about that this week. Many of you, I hope, are listening to Sinclair Ferguson's, Ferguson's podcast, Things Unseen, and he was looking at who is Jesus? Not how we imagine him to be, but how is he presented in the word as who he is. And that is so important for us all. I hope that as you heard that Egyptian hymn to Ammon Ray, it was offensive to you. It certainly is offensive to God. God alone is the only creator and sustainer of all things. The Lord was not impressed, not with the idolatry, of Egypt, it was so offensive to him that he was about to destroy all confidence in sun worship. And that brings us to this ninth commandment. We're going to use three main headings. We'll look at the plague of darkness as it's inflicted. In the middle of that, we're going to look at some spiritual lessons about darkness and judgment. And then we're going to consider Pharaoh and Moses' final conflict. And we'll conclude some application so firstly the plague of darkness inflicted it's like every other day sun's popped over the horizon it's beginning to rise and the Egyptians are busy worshipping their gods celebrating that their god has triumphed over the underworld of darkness and come forth again and so they had hope all was normal all was good but this day was not to be like any other day Indeed, like the day of hail and the day of the invasion of the locusts, this day would be quite unlike any day that their fathers or their fathers' fathers had ever seen in all of their 1,800 years. What they're going to experience beginning that day and for the next three days never happened in all of their history and never would happen again. In verse 21, we see that the Lord commanded Moses. 
I was asked last week, you know, how did God command Moses? Did he speak audibly to him? Was it the spirit of God within him? We don't know, but Moses had no question. He knew it was God. He, he did stand before God as he represented himself in the burning bush, and he heard the voice of God with his own ears. Moses needed that to bring him to understanding because Moses came out of Egypt. Moses went to the schools of Egypt. And so God encountered him and revealed himself to him, and Moses knows the voice of the Lord now. And the Lord spoke to Moses, and he gives him this command. Stretch out your hand. Now, we've been told in the past when he stretched out his hand, he had the rod. And I don't think it's right that we conclude because the rod's not named that the rod's not used. Because the pattern's established, the rod, of I think of it, and I think it's referred to as the rod of God in the hand of Moses or in the hand of Aaron, as the case may be. God commands him to lift his hand toward heaven. To what end? That there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. Darkness which may even be felt. We don't know anything about that kind of darkness. This is what God's sending upon them, a darkness that would be felt. And it's going to last not just of a day, not just the next day, but even into the third day, three days of darkness are so dark that it can be felt. Darkness is going to cover that pagan nation. This is not the darkness of night. We can still see and find our way around in the night. This is a darkness unlike any other darkness. Just like the third and the sixth plague, this one comes with no warning. Remember that? We've seen this pattern. You had one, two, three. The third plague, no warning. Four, five, six. The third of that set, no warning. We've had seven, eight, nine. Nine is the third in the set. Again, no warning. And it seems that it comes on so fast to the other one that God is sending the plagues this way. This, this plague, with, with its ominous terror and even the indication of judgment, sets the stage for the tenth and the final plague when the death angel goes throughout the land. So in verse 22, what do you think Moses did, children? He obeyed the Lord. That's the right thing to do, isn't it? Obey the Lord. He obeyed the Lord. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven. Did Moses do anything other than that? No, he obeyed, stretched out his hand, and then thick darkness. There was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt. God did it. A thick darkness. It's interesting here in the Hebrew that it uses two words for darkness. It's like it says, darkness, darkness. It, it's, it's a means in that language to say it was so incredibly dark. It was dark darkness. And indeed, a darkness that could be felt. Some years ago, my wife and Deborah, our daughter, were at Mammoth Cave in Kentucky. Um, I love the town nearby. It's Paducah. It's just a fun town name to say. And we're down in there. We made our way down into the cave, and we're being guided by the park ranger, and we are seated on benches. He said, everybody put their cell phones away. He said, I'm going to turn off the lights for just a moment. Don't panic. We'll have a light in just a moment. And it did. It was that kind of darkness. There was no light in that cave. You literally could not see your hand in front of your face. And, and you begin to feel the, the ominous nature of it. And then he struck a match, which was a relief. If it had lasted long, because think about being in a cave like that. How would we have got out? If, if the power failed and nobody had any flashlights, how would we have gotten out? it would very quickly become terrifying. That kind of darkness. 
thick darkness for three days. And the scripture says, and no one saw his brother. No one could see anyone. It was so dark that they did not rise from their bed. It says their places. They, they didn't get up. You can't see anything. You know, we know what it's like you know, when the power's out and you get up in the night and you're trying to find a flashlight and you stumble around. You, but you have an awareness and, and you can see you know, there's that, always that ambient light of night. But you couldn't see anything. The thick darkness that had overtaken their world. No father went to work. No children went out to play. The terrifying darkness had everybody just glued to their seat or bound to their bed, as it were. In Psalm 105, which we've sung twice in recent weeks, it celebrates the exodus. And And I hope you notice that in that, the order of the plagues in that psalm is reversed. It's not in the order in which they occurred. Matthew Henry, as a matter of fact, the darkness is the first plague mentioned in Psalm 105. Matthew Henry comments on this, saying that the plague of darkness was a most dreadful plague, and that's why it is placed first in this psalm. This was a dreadful plague, and I will say to you, it's impossible for us to imagine what it was like. Oh, the experience you can have in a deep cavern in the earth will give you some taste of it. But this was normal day, normal life. People had plans, things they were going to go about to do, and you couldn't. Not that day or the next day. They might very well be they lost all sense of the passage of time. Because you think about how much the rising and the setting of the sun gives us a sense of what is a day. They had no clocks. They had no watches. So this plague was frightening. It was terrifying. And it's, in some sense, it sets us up for our next point. Why would it have been so terrifying? Not only was it dark that it could not see you move around, and so dark that they could even feel the darkness, but think about this. What we began with, the entire spiritual order, the whole worldview of the Egyptians was upended in a moment. And where was Pharaoh? Pharaoh was supposed to be Amun-Re on the earth. Why did he not make the sun to shine? Everything that they had believed since their childhood was suddenly disrupted. This really, you think about, we've heard about the contest with Pharaoh. He thinks he's sovereign. Where's the sun, Pharaoh? You're so sovereign, you're so great, make it shine. Bring it forth. Pharaoh is absolutely humiliated, devastated. Would the people ever look at him the same way ever again? No, certainly not, at least not for a generation or two. God made it very clear to Pharaoh, you're not sovereign, but I am. I govern all my creatures and all their actions And there's nothing you can do about it. Imagine Pharaoh. It was such a time, you know, kings, they they might pace around their their throne room. But it was too dark to pace around. You can imagine Pharaoh just agitated and irritated upon his bed. What is he to do? Uh, Everybody believes these things about him and he can't do anything. And he doesn't even know why it's happened. I mean, you can imagine he would think, well, there's that Moses guy again. But certainly he wasn't so naive as to think that Moses alone was doing these things. Moses kept telling him, the Lord says, let my people go. 
and he's heard nowhere else. This time, it's just darkness. And Pharaoh is shown to be what he is, a mere man, nothing more. Now, notice in this account, I alluded to this earlier, Moses, as he records this, he goes from the eighth plague immediately into the ninth plague. And I think we should understand there's a certain kind of rapid progression through the plagues. We're told after the one, there was a seven-day delay. We're never told that again. And so I think we should understand other without exceptions, like one plague ends and the next, you know, Moses goes and this tomorrow it's going to happen and tomorrow it happens. That plague ends and the Moses goes, tomorrow it's going to happen. They just keep coming. And this one, how rapidly did it fall upon them? God was on the move. And the kingdom of Pharaoh was shattered. Yes, even the kingdom of darkness was, has suffered a major defeat catch the irony of that who do they worship what do they worship the sun and there's darkness on the land their god has been toppled because he's no god at all now what we see here is god is about to deliver the seed of the woman that's abraham's descendants particularly in the tribe of judah he's about to deliver them out from underneath the realm of the seed of the serpent that's who Pharaoh is. That's who Egypt is. He's going to bring them out. Israel was leaving. God was calling his son out of Egypt. And, of course, we know that God will do that later when Christ is an infinite. And Joseph and Mary go down into Egypt so that God can call them out, thus fulfilling prophecy and showing that Christ is the true son of God, the true Israel of God, came into the world to save. But God is about to call them out. And let's notice this plague is on three days, but there's an exception. Look at verse 23. So they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. It's a normal day in the land of Goshen. The sun rose, the sun set, fathers went to work. I guess they probably wouldn't have had to go to the brick kilns in Egypt, but they went about their business. Children went out to play. It was a normal day over there. And God had set this boundary. So here's... Imagine that wall. That's, that's the edge of Egypt, and there's the land of Goshen. In some way, God in his supernatural power has stopped the darkness at this point and kept it from encroaching on the light, and he's kept the light from dispelling the darkness. He set a wall in the division, even as he will with the Red Sea. When the children of Israel cross over, God will part the waters and set walls that retain the water in one place, and they will walk through in the midst of it. Yes. This is our God. This is the God of the universe. This is the God who reigns on high. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God whom Moses serves. Well, let's consider, before going on, some spiritual lessons, how darkness and judgment are related. Darkness is used throughout the scripture. There's the contrasting of light and darkness, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. We see this very clearly here, how Egypt is bound in idolatry, spiritual darkness, because apart from God, they don't have any light, and they're bound in darkness. And so when the plague comes, they are now actually literally in the darkness that they have been in spiritually all along. It's a judgment upon them. Whereas Israel belongs to the one true and living God and is called to worship him who is light. And at the time of the plague, they were living in the light. There was a sense that they were enjoying the blessings of God. 
There's no sharper distinction, is there? Light and darkness. They can't cohabitate. You, as I told you once before when we were in the cavern, that the park ranger lit one match, and that we could see one another with the light of one match, and you could see to some degree into the, the cavern, not to the back of it, but just that one match. Darkness cannot overwhelm the light. God is light. John, the same one who wrote John's gospel, First John says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. We're told again by the psalmist, Psalm 36, in God's light we see light. God's light is more brilliant than the light that we have here. God dwells in unapproachable light. The Apostle Paul tells us that Christ Jesus is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality dwelling in unapproachable light. You'll just walk up to him. Remember how it was for Isaiah the prophet when he saw God arrayed in his throne room in that unapproachable light, and he falls on his face. I am ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips and dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. This is that same Isaiah who will soon see the Lord in chapter 2. He says, come. It's an invitation. Come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. That's the same Lord, the covenant faithful God. Walk in the light of the Lord. That's the invitation that Christ gives us. Come and walk in the light of the Lord. Because where? We're walking in darkness until we come to Christ, until he brings us to him. And then the invitation is to walk in the light as he is in the light, we're told elsewhere. Now the scripture teaches that darkness is a manifestation of God's judgment. We clearly see that here with the ninth plague. We see it so clearly. But then later in Deuteronomy... Moses is about to be gathered to his fathers. God's going to send him up to the mountain and he's going to die. And he is, for that next generation that's about to cross over the river Jordan at Jericho and go into the land that God has promised, he's telling them their history. He's recounting them the law. He's telling the great things that God has said as well as the things he's done. And in chapter 28, he warns them, that if they fail to obey God, there's going to be judgment. And he talks about that the plagues of Egypt will be visited upon them. Judgment, verse 27, he says, The Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt, with tumors, with a scab, and with the itch from which you cannot be healed. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of heart, and you shall grope at noonday as, men, as a man, blind man gropes in darkness. And you shall not prosper in your ways. Judgment, darkness, groping. Samuel the prophet declares, guard your feet. I'm sorry, God will guard your feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. Judgment. The Joel the prophet, he speaks of the day of the Lord is coming for it is at hand, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Amos the prophet uses the same language. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? 
He's talking about the unrighteous. It will be darkness and not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, as though he went into his house and leaned on the wall, his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him. It is not the day, is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light. Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? We could go on and on and on. It's just a little sampling. Darkness is used to speak of the judgment of God. Jesus uses darkness many, many times when he's speaking about the final judgment for sinners. Hell is a place of absolute darkness. In Revelation 16, we're told that the fifth bowl of God's wrath is poured out on the throne of the beast. And this is the result that is recorded there. They will gnaw on their tongues because of pain. They will blaspheme God of heaven because of their pains and their sores because they did not repent from their deeds. One final passage, Jude, a short little book. He writes to those who have crept into the church. Language is used as like slithering serpents. Makes me think of the seed of the serpent. They slithered into the church, seeking to lead God's people astray, perverting the gospel, distorting the word of God. And Jude says that God has reserved the blackness of darkness forever for them. When I was a younger man, um, it was not uncommon uh, when uh, people from the church would witness to people of the world and, and uh, you would use uh, warning of hell and, and the terrifying realities of hell and people say, oh, I know, that's fine. He said, I want to go to hell so I can be with my friends. My friends are all going to be there. We're going to party. We're going to have a good time. No. Absolutely not. Hell is a place of absolute darkness. The darkness, much like what these people experienced in Egypt. You can feel it. You can't see anything. You don't see anyone. You can't see yourself. And then there's the pain and the fires and the terror of the wrath of God forever and ever and ever. Egypt had a foretaste of that for three days. The next plague the firstborn sons in the houses of all Egypt will die. And they will be in that place of everlasting darkness. Even Pharaoh's son, who, like Pharaoh, is perceived to be the God in waiting, as it were, for when his father died. Well, let us thirdly consider Pharaoh and Moses' final conflict. So, verse 24, Then Pharaoh called to Moses... And said, go serve the Lord. Now, how is it possible that he called for Moses? We're not told. Did some of you send some of his servants with torches to find Moses? Maybe they went groping in the darkness to find him. But, you know, the way the passage reads, it's not unreasonable to think the three days of darkness have ended. And in any sense for him, the terror lingers on. Unlike the other plagues, it's, it's on him. And he cries out, go get Moses. Moses, plead to your God. I want an end to this. And even we've heard him, you know, he says, I've sinned. This one time only, make intercession for me. It could very well be that the, the three days of the plague are over. Because remember, during the darkness, no one went from their place. But it was so terrifying, the Pharaoh sins for Moses. And he's prepared to let them go. He doesn't have to play, 
pray, you know, make this plague end, which again underscores the reality that it, it could very well be over. But if you look at 24, Pharaoh's humiliated. He's been thoroughly exposed to be a fraud. He is no sovereign. He's not God. And yet what's he doing? He's issuing orders. He says to Moses, go serve the Lord. It's the same thing he's been saying. He thinks he's in charge, even after all that. Is, is that not our sinful heart on full display? Don't think that you're different than that, apart from God's grace. We're just that audacious as sinners. But he thinks he's going to be magnanimous. He's going to give them a concession. Okay, this time you can take your children. Well, it's implied that the, the mothers will go too. All the people can go, but no animals. You can't take any animals, he says. But let your flocks and your herds be kept back. Let your little ones also go with you. He thinks he's giving Moses what he asked for. The king, by keeping the animals, thinks that he can destroy the worship of the children of Israel. They want to go worship their God. I won't let them have their animals. And then they can't worship their God because, after all, they're supposed to worship me because I'm God, even though he's just been totally humiliated and exposed to be the fraud that he is. He still has a hard heart. Well, Pharaoh's dead warm, wrong because the animals belong to the Lord. Scripture tells us the cattle on a thousand years belong to God. He told uh, Israel, he says, you, know, you, you bring your sacrifice to me, and it's not because I need them to eat. I own everything. It all belongs to me. That's why you sacrifice them, to be reminded that indeed these things belong to me, and that blood should be sent, uh, spilled to picture Christ, a, a, a sacrifice for your sins in your place. Think about it, too. The animals in, in, in Egypt would have been largely destroyed at this point with the plague on the animals and, and then the hail, and now there's nothing green left to eat. Um, but Israel's been protected from that. And so I, Pharaoh may have a, a, a covetous eye on the livestock of Israel. He says, okay, I'll let you go. They'll leave their animals behind, and then we'll just go help ourselves. Well... It's not the way it's going to go, is it? Moses. Moses. Remember where we started with Moses? Oh, Lord, you got to send somebody else. i I got a fat lip. I can't talk. I, 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 you need somebody else to go for me. So, okay, Aaron will speak on your behalf. But now you see there's a boldness. I said when we started out, we're going to see Moses grow. And Moses is growing. Look at Moses. Verse 20, uh, yeah, Moses says, verse 25, you must and, and look what he's saying. You must also give us sacrifices and burn offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. He's telling Pharaoh, you're to give us whatever animals you have. And notice how verse 26 reads, our livestock also shall go. You hear the boldness? Pharaoh's whipped. Egypt is done. And indeed, the animals that... Pharaoh might have left, belonged to the Lord anyway. And Moses tells him very boldly, no, they're going with us. But then Moses goes even further, verse 26, our livestock also shall go with us, contrary to Pharaoh's command. Notice how he puts it, not a hoof shall be left. Now, they have four hooves, right? And, and, and Moses is using the one part to speak of the whole. He says, so complete will their going be that not even one hoof is going to be left behind. We're going with our animals, whether you like it or not, Pharaoh. And Moses explains, 
we need to take them with us because we must go to serve the Lord our God. That is a service of worship, the very thing we are doing here. Don't we often say this is a worship service? But flip it around. This is a service of worship. We come to render unto God what he is owed. We serve him, ascribing unto him glory. We come in a service of worship. And that's what he says. We are going to serve the Lord our God. We're going to worship our God. And we do not know what we must serve the Lord with until we arrive there. We don't know what his commands will be. Now, that's true, although Israel has a sense because we find Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes, gathers his family together. When Laban's come out, remember Laban? It's great that we went through Genesis. So you remember this. You know, Laban comes out hot after Jacob because he's taken his two daughters and their family and their livestock, and they've gone, and God warns Laban. And so Laban says, okay, and they, they, they have a sacrifice that is a feast because they sat down to eat. It's the same word that is used here. That's all in Genesis 31. It's, this is a feast. This is a fellowship. The peace offerings that God will command Moses about later on, that was the deal. Part of the animal was sacrificed and part of it was eaten in the presence of the Lord because God accepted the worshiper because of the sacrifice of the innocent one. And so then they had a festivity in the presence of the Lord. Even as later we reminded that Christ has been sacrificed for us and in our place. And we're reminded of that as we come to the Lord's table, not a sacrifice, but what do we do? We have a feast. This is the Lord's feast when he feeds us even on himself spiritually. And so Moses said, we've got to take everything with us because we don't know what the Lord's going to require. Well, children, you know what's coming next? Pharaoh's hard heart is coming next. But notice for the last couple of plagues, Pharaoh's not hardening his heart. The Lord is hardening Pharaoh's heart according to what it is. Verse 27, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. So he offered, he thought he was being very gracious, go take your little ones. Moses said, no, we must. We must take our livestock with us. Proverbs 21.1 tells us the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he, that is God, turns it, the king's heart, whithersoever he will. That's King James. I went and got it because that's the way I memorized it. And I love, that's a good thing, whithersoever. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Pharaoh's heart was hardened by the Lord. God is working. God is, even as we said, he's upholding Pharaoh in his hardness to accomplish his purpose all the way until the plague of the firstborn. Even as we saw in John's gospel, the the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, they wanted to put Jesus to death. And time and again they were going, and he just walked through their midst or he just disappeared. Why? Because his hour had not come. God sovereignly governing the hearts of men frustrating their plans because he, that is Christ, would be crucified at the hands of the Roman Romans because of the Jews' demands outside of Jerusalem by the sheep gate, even as we heard it unfold in John's gospel. Because God is sovereign. He will have his will and his way. Well, Pharaoh's been bested. He's been humiliated. He's been ashamed. 
What do you think his response is going to be? Well, we don't have to wonder. It's right there in verse 28. Then Pharaoh said to him, that is to Moses, get away from me. It's like, get out of my sight. I don't ever want to see you again. And if I do see you again, you're going to die. There's the threat. Now just think about that. And Moses and, and Pharaoh had some pretty good crosswords, some conflict all along. Have you ever wondered why didn't Pharaoh put Moses to death all along? Why, why didn't he get rid of him after the second plague? This guy, he just keeps coming, and the plagues keep coming. Why, did, why didn't Pharaoh just say, hey, take him out and execute him? You know why? Because God is sovereign. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. This was a contest that God was bringing about and would go to the end that he had designed. The Pharaoh is angry, but he doesn't have the rule over all. So what are we reminded here? We've seen Moses grow. Moses is bold. Why? Because Moses has come to understand He's grown in his timidity to be a confident prophet of God. He's bold, not in himself, but in the Lord, because Moses is not proud. Moses does not become proud. God himself will say of Moses later on, there is not a more humble man on the face of the earth. But why is Moses so confident? He's confident in the Lord. You know, children, sometimes things trouble us, and we can be anxious we can be nervous and we can be frightened. We can imagine different things that might happen or we may be more sure would happen. But children, I want you to remember, you are in God's hand. You're never at risk. Whether that be a snake or bees or darkness, uh, new experiences, God keeps his own. You are safe and secure, children, in the hands of God. Just like Moses was safe to stand before Pharaoh, there was no need for him to be concerned because Moses' life was in the hand of God just as yours is. Well, Moses had the last word. You know, I, I can imagine Pharaoh shouting. I don't know how Moses said this. I don't think he shouted. He's not angry. He, he's resting. In his God. But he responds to angry Pharaoh. He says, you have spoken well. What you said is right. Because what? I will never see your face again. Moses knows something Pharaoh doesn't know. Pharaoh thinks that he can keep Moses from ever coming again because of the threat. But Moses knows he's not coming again because of God's will and the way God's plan is going to unfold. Now, we'll find out in the course of the next plague that there seems to be an encounter between Pharaoh and Moses. But we'll cover that when we come to it. What do we see here? Pharaoh has run out of time. The old saying, the gig's up. The foot's about to drop. And indeed, what a foot it will be. Death is going to enter his house. And indeed, every house throughout all the land of Egypt even as we've seen the plague of the hail and the plague of the locusts, all the plagues, all of Egypt, everywhere, every house, death is coming to every house. Let's conclude. We'll make some applications with it. Where do you dwell? Let's think about what we just heard. Do you, do you dwell in the land of Egypt? 
Are you believing in false gods? Maybe a god of your own imagining. Maybe you think you're God. That was the temptation of Satan in the garden. You can be God. You don't need God. And indeed, many men live that way. And if it weren't for Christ rescuing us, we would believe that. So do you live in the land of Egypt? Are you following a, 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 a false worldview that the way you understand the world is, is totally made up? Or are you in the land of Goshen? Are you living in the land of light? Do you live under him who is light? the Lord Jesus Christ. You dwell in one of the two places. You, you've heard me say something like this from this pulpit multiple times. You're either in the kingdom of darkness or in the kingdom of light. Where do you dwell this morning? Baptized children, you are members of the church. And so by definition, you are in the kingdom of light. It does not guarantee and assure that the light of Christ is shining in your heart, but you're in the kingdom of light, and you are hearing Christ in his kingdom because you're in the church. You are blessed. You're not in the kingdom of darkness. The God who is light has promised to be your God, even as he's been your parents' God, and he has proven himself faithful to you as your God. But whether you're young, five, six, three, or 16, 18, 36, Okay, I know, 50s, <laughs> we'll stop there. Regardless of your age, you need Christ. You need a new heart. You need to be born from above. You can be in the church all your life, and that does not make you a Christian any more, children, than parking a car or standing in the garage will make you a car. All right? Just being in the church doesn't make you a believer. But God has made promises to you, and his promises are in Lord Jesus Christ. Yes and amen. You hear the call of Christ through the preaching of the word week after week. Come unto me, and I will give you rest. And that is a sincere call of Christ. But there's a sober warning. If you grow up in the church, you hit adulthood, you leave the home, and you walk away from the church, that is a dangerous thing to do. And a dangerous place to go. You see, that's what the world, even your own flesh and the devil, want you to do. They want you to leave the church and go live in the world and live like the world. But Jesus promises salvation to whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord. He will save to the uttermost. He alone is able. He is the only Savior. He is a lovely Savior. He has paid the debt for your sin. And he alone can give you everlasting life. He was willing to undergo the suffering of the cross, the shame and the humiliation of the cross, and the wrath of, the, of God poured out upon him. You may say, Pastor Daniel, I hear you. And I think I have Christ. I think Christ has me. How do I know if, if my heart of stone has been taken out and, and, and God has given me a heart of flesh, how do I know if I have salvation? Or perhaps you're a young adult who is in the world more often in your daily life and you're wondering, are you in the world or not? You, know, you, you can think about how you've behaved and wonder, do I really belong to Christ? Listen to what the Word of God says, again from John, 1 John. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Have you confessed sin? Have you called upon Christ? And then consider, are you walking as one is in the light? We heard from the, the law this morning. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And indeed, if, if we are in Christ, that's what we aspire to. Not to be saved, but because we are saved. Like with the Heidelberg that we recite. The holy law shows us our need of Christ. The holy gospel gives, shows us Christ. And if we're then in Christ and the holy law, we love it to live by it. Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind? There is a day coming when God will destroy all those who worship any other God beside himself. So let us make sure that the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is our Lord and our God. Not by works which we have done, but by simple, childlike faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. O Lord our God, we do praise you that though we are in the old book with a record of what happened a long time ago, that yet it is still your living, inspired word and it speaks to our hearts. Lord, we need to be warned of judgment, of the terrible darkness of hell lest we become complacent. But Lord, even as your people redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, we rejoice to know that you have uh, reserved for us a better place and that we shall not know this judgment. We will not know this wrath and the condemnation that will fall upon the ungodly. Lord, continue to bless us to grow up in Christ. Lord, call our little ones to yourself with that effectual call of the Spirit, even from a young age, that they will know with a confidence they belong to Jesus and he belongs to them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take our hymnals. We're going to sing.